The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. MLB show. Here are your hosts, the luckiest men on the face of the earth, Chase Fedorsky and Bryce Holden. Welcome to episode 88 of the Underdog Sports Baseball Show. My normal co-host Bryce is actively working in the healthcare industry, fighting the good fight. Hopefully we're going to have a vaccine for COVID. Uh, So given that I am in Livingston, New Jersey, Staying at home for a few days after a minor COVID scare of my own. Uh, it's a pleasure to have on our special guest host this week, uh, my father, Mike Wadorski. Dad, welcome to the podcast. Chase, it is great to be on the podcast. Pinch hitting for my man, Bryce. So I want to ask you this. You know, Normally we start every week with our Yankee number, um, but there's two interesting pieces of news this week. And I wanted to ask you, you know, we like to talk betting on the show. Uh, coming into 2020, and I know it's been a very hectic year, what do you think would have been the bigger Bovada Sportsbook long shot uh, for me and you to be talking about in the baseball world heading into more or less uh, Thanksgiving coming up? Uh, so the two options are going to be for you, uh, one, that not only Tony LaRusso would be a manager in the bigs again, but that we would be talking about the craziness of the White Sox hiring after he got charged with a DUI this year, uh, or the fact that barriers have been broken in baseball in the past week and that Kim Ng is the first female GM, not just in baseball, but in the four major North American sports. You know, what's amazing about it, and my first takeaway is that, thank goodness we're talking about Kim, and the fact that uh, I look at some of the GMs that have been hired the last couple years who are just 30 years old, and here Kim has been in Major League Baseball for over 30 years, and we've come so far, and it's about time, and we're talking about the great part about her, and then on the sad part is, I feel like we've gone 30 years in reverse talking about the fact that Tony La Russa, not only with his DWI, I think the second one. D- DUI, for DUI, what it's absolutely. Well, let me ask you this, because me and Bryce were actually talking about this this week, and you know, you have more life experience than me. DW is worse than DUI, no? Yeah, I mean, driving... I would think while intoxicated is worse than under the influence. I, you know, to me, I always thought that they were all the same. Um, Fair. I, I just... You know, Tony LaRusa, it's like I could drive drunk, but don't be mad at me because, you know, I'm big on, you know, taking care of pets and he does do wonderful things with the APCA or whatever, or AUDA. I mean, again, which one is it? But uh, no, um, yeah, the DUI, the DWI, either way, it's just stupid. I mean, Tony LaRusa, take an Uber. We'll get to a little bit more on that in a little bit, as well as the Ing news, but just wanted to give a little bit of preview of what's to come. Uh, So back to our numbers, Yankee number for the week. This is our 88th show, and again, you know, baseball, usually once you get above, I would say... 60. The numbers get a little bit dicey uh, until you get to like 99 for us, which, you know, we'll talk about Judge when we get there. We'll talk about Manny. Uh, But 88 is actually worn by a current Yankee, uh, and that is our third base coach, Phil Nevin. Uh, So my follow-up question for you is going to be on Phil Nevin. Um, I guess a two-part question. You know, one, if we had to make the Bovada odds for 
who is going to win in a battle royale of coaches across baseball? Do you think anyone's beating Phil Nevin in a fight? No way. I mean, he was a badass when he played. And uh, I, I've heard interviews with his son. And uh, I know he's psyched his son to be in the AL East now. But Phil is the ultimate badass in every way, shape, or form. So something we've been doing these past few weeks is when there's only one Yankee, uh, we discuss what is who is the best player in other sports to wear that number. Uh, and 88 is a number stacked with historic pass catchers in the NFL. So I'm going to give you the five names that I pulled, and you could tell me uh, who you think is the ultimate number 88 in sports. So we will start with uh, former Buckeye and Hall of Fame receiver Chris Carter. Probably... The best tight end in football history, Tony Gonzalez. Um, a guy whose son actually just committed to play wide receiver at Ohio State. Hall of Fame receiver for the Colts, Syracuse alum, uh, Marvin Harrison. Michael Irvin, a man who needs more int no introduction on and off the field. Uh, or former USC athletic director and Super Bowl MVP, Lynn Swan. Wow. Who knew? When you were first saying 88, I was going, all right, is it Barra Barra? And I can't even believe the amount of people that had 88. I mean, I'll have to just say right off the bat, Marvin Harrison. Um, but what a group. But just thinking back to even the days when I started playing fantasy football, I mean, Marvin was one of those guys that you were like, on the radar, who's going to be the first guy that I'm going to pick, wide receiver? It was Marvin Harrison. So we asked this last week, and Bryce isn't here to answer it, so I'll ask you this then with Marvin Harrison. Um, best receiving duo of all time. Uh, and it came up last week because Isaac Bruce was number 87. Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt for the Rams or Marvin and Reggie Wayne for the Colts. Wow. At the, at or if there's a third you know, best receiving duo of all time, you want to throw in, be our guest. I mean, Swan and Stallworth, because we talked about Swan. They were they were unbelievable. I think about uh, when I had Tory Holt and just those incredible guys with Kurt Warner. I actually had those on my fantasy team. But I got to tell you, I mean, the Reggie Wayne, Marvin Harrison, uh, probably underrated. But as far as two of the best, I, I sign up for that every time with those two guys. You know, it's it's one of those things where you can't go wrong either way because I do think in each group you had Reggie Wayne and... Tory Holt, who got a little bit more of the notoriety, and then Isaac Bruce and Marvin Harrison were kind of the superstars that flew under the radar. Um, it seems like this is something we could talk about for a while, but we'll pivot to baseball. So Bryce and I mentioned, uh, Bryce actually reported on air the Tony LaRusso DUI, and we got more info as the show went on. Uh, so I wanted to dedicate a little bit of time just to the absurdity of this situation. Um, so when the police officer arrested him for driving under the influence, he said to the cop, I'm a Hall of Fame baseball person while being placed into the back of a cruiser, according to an incident report obtained by ESPN. Uh, again, LaRusso is 76 years old and he was charged in late October of last year with DUI by the Maricopa County Attorney's Office in Arizona after BEC tests taken the night before. Um, had showed that his BAC was over the legal limit of .08. And my apologies. Um, he was charged in late October. The actual event took place uh, in February. 
and it's pretty amazing. Uh, LaRusa said that he had had a flat tire. I hit something once I got on the 43 and that he was returning from dinner with friends on the California Angels baseball team. When the officer asked for identification, according to the report, LaRusa continued instead to talk on the phone to a AAA representative. The officer repeated the command and LaRusa tossed cash and cards onto the passenger seat but did not furnish a driver's license. The officer asked him to hang up his phone and provide the license. While shuffling through his money and cards, LaRusa twice passed over the license before finally handing it to the officer according to the report. The officer then asked LaRusa to exit the car for field sobriety test, and LaRusa said he had undergone a hip replacement four weeks earlier and asked, why are we doing the test? The officer said there was an odor of alcohol emanating from LaRusa, and when he discussed administering a portable breath test, LaRusa said, I don't trust it. What makes you think I don't have control of my facilities? Uh, and he finally agreed to take the test if it gets me out of here, according to the report. Uh, again, his BAC 0 0.90, which is over the limit of 0.08. And when Wed is read his Miranda rights, uh, LaRusa said, I don't know my rights because you told me once I blow into the thing that we'd be done. The officer then asked LaRusa if he had any drinks, and he replied that he had one glass of wine at dinner. Um, and then LaRusa said what is now the infamous line of, do you see my ring? I'm legit. I'm a Hall of Famer, brother. You're trying to embarrass me. I'll let you give your initial response. Before I do that, wow. when when ESPN called LaRusa, he said, I have nothing to say and hung up the phone. Uh, a message left last week for his lawyer, Larry Kazin, was not returned. And the craziest thing of all of this is a White Sox official came out and publicly said, we were aware of this uh, when hiring LaRusa. So, I mean, what do you want to tackle first? The craziness of the fact that, again, Tony didn't call an Uber, as you said. Uh, the fact that the White Sox were aware of this and still hired him. Um, and then C... I mean, we were talking about this the other day in our kitchen. I mean, this is exactly, almost note for note, what Wally Backman got fired for before managing a single game with the D-backs. I mean, if you are Jerry Reinsdorf, I know you kind of made your bed and have to lie in it here because he was the one who was so clear about hiring Larusa. but how do you not fire the guy knowing you hired him with a pending criminal charge? It, there's so many different layers to this. I mean, first of all, the fact that Jerry Reinsdorf wants to make up for a mistake that he said he made like 35 years ago. Let's put that into perspective. Kim Ng wasn't even in Major League Baseball yet, but she still had to wait 30 years to be a GM. It's from the Reese Witherspoon School of, do you know who I am? And of course, it's this county that he gets arrested and that we've heard about nonstop now for the last week and a half because of the election. I never even heard of this county. Now I've heard of it twice. It's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, you take away the age factor. If anybody else that wasn't a Hall of Famer that was hired to manage a Major League Baseball team, or let alone any team in either any of the professional sports or any of the collegiate sports, even at the high school level, and we found out that they had just had a prior DUI, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. We would be on to the next candidate, and it would be what it would be. The fact that he was so stubborn and so cocky in every scenario, in addition to hanging up the phone when they wanted to just find out ESPN if he had a comment, it's just very typical of who Tony La Russa not only is, but he's one of those guys that always thought he was bigger than the game. So I guess my next question is, I, I 
feel like the answer is going to be no because of Reinsdorf's relationship with Larusa. But do you think we get to the point where the public outcry of this, you know, similar to how the Carlos Beltran, obviously two very different situations, but where the public outcry to Beltran being named in the Astros sign stealing scandal led to him getting fired before ever managing for the Mets? Do you think that this will get to this point, or do you think Larusa will be still managing for the White Sox in 2021? Yeah, I, I think that you know public opinion is going to fall in the favor that they're going to have to you know, make an announcement that he's no longer under consideration to be the manager. I mean, you just, regardless of, of who it is, what it is, again, the incident calls for the fact that uh, you can't go forward with this and uh, they got to make it right. I mean, the Chicago media, it seems that the fans, everything that I've read is that everyone's like, it's enough already. Let's, let's move on. And uh, they have to move on. It's so tough, too, because they fired a guy in Rick Renteria who's been the epitome of class. I mean, this is the second time this has happened now where he's been ousted for a bigger name brand manager. It happened on the other side of Chicago uh, at the end of the 2014 season when he was replaced after one year by Joe Madden. Um, If they decide to move on from Rick Renteria... You know, again, we go by the odds. Do you think he's the Bavada favorite in the locker room to be named the manager again, or do you think there's an outside candidate at which point, you know, that Reinsdorf brings in and completely starts fresh at this point? I think he's going to start fresh. I think he's going to look at it. And, uh, you know, I would hope that they would hire within. I got to be honest, I'm not sure who else was on the staff. I know that there's other good candidates out there. Uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there's, there's very. Uh, good managerial choices or coaching choices that could be the next Kim Ng, and that's how strong I feel about it. I'd rather see that move than to stay with Tony LaRussa. And the hard part, too, is, I mean, this is a team that's so ready to win now that you do want to bring in someone with experience and with the name brand recognition, which is honestly why A.J. Hinch would have been such a perfect hire for this team uh, if Reinsdorf didn't have his head up his own ass. Um, I mean, here's a name I'll throw out. He's the bench coach, Joe McEwing, former big leaguer. He's been now, uh, he's been coaching with the White Sox since 2012. Um, but again, if you're a White Sox fan, I guess you would want continuity at this point, but do do, I think you would have to want a guy with some big league experience, just given where this team was last year and that their trajectory is only going to go upwards in the next few years with that young core. Yeah. I love the McEwings. I think that he, he's like a Craig council. I mean, another great utility guy. You know, if it's not a catcher, we need the utility guy to be the guy to manage. Um, You know, I really, I I don't, I don't think that Reinsdorf is going to go with another big name. I think that maybe, you know, the thing that they have to do now is maybe a Joe McCune or somebody that's just completely outside of the box. My prediction will be if they hire someone, they will hire someone within the division, a guy with no managerial experience, but a guy uh, with maybe more baseball experience between him and his family than anyone in the game. I say they will raid the Indians coaching staff, and if they get rid of La Russa, Sandy Alomar Jr. will be the next manager of the White Sox. That would be great. I mean, Tito, you know, every time that he gets on the microphone, you know, that's the first thing he says is how great a job that Sandy not only did when he was sick, but in general, that he should absolutely be an MLB manager at this point. Um, I, You know, let's throw out Phil Nevin, um, the badass that he is. I know a lot of people are looking at Phil and, you know, maybe they, I don't want him to raid the Yankees, but at the end of the day, what they need to do is they do need to do the right thing. They need to move on. And I think that they should do it before Thanksgiving. And uh, it's enough with Tony. Don't wait to see if he's charged or not, you know, officially. This it, is bullshit. Jerry Reinsdorf, the clock is ticking. 
Um, but in the meantime, good news around the rest of baseball. Uh, and again, you know, you mentioned that Kimming, the last time when Larusa got fired from Chicago, um, she was still, I believe Larusa got fired in 86. Kim Ng, um, actually with the same White Sox team, that was her first stop in her baseball You're career. Right, that's when she came up. And incredibly enough, it's been a baseball journey, 30 years in the making. She's been in the game every year since 1990, uh, 52 years old, an extensive background as an executive. Uh, she started in the White Sox front office, was there in 1996, worked for the American League for two years there, was Brian Cashman's assistant GM from 98 to 2001, was the Dodgers assistant GM from 2002 to 2011, and I'll mention more about each of those roles in a little bit, uh, and has then has been working with the commissioner's office uh, since 2011, and Commissioner Manfred had this to say, he said, all of us in Major League Baseball are thrilled for Kim and the opportunity she has earned with the Marlins. Kim's appointment makes history in all professional sports and sets a significant example for the millions of women and girls who love baseball and softball. The hard work, leadership, and record of achievement throughout her long career in the national pastime led to this outcome, and we wish Kim all the best as she begins her career with the Marlins. Um, again, I, Kim will have control of the baseball operations. I think Jeter will still be a little bit hands-on. Um, Gary Denbo, who runs scouting, uh, pro amateur field, pro amateur and international departments. I think he'll still have a big role. But again, this is the first time you are ever going to see a woman calling the shots in the operations department of the four big four American sports: baseball, football, basketball, hockey. I mean, this is absolutely huge. Uh, a little bit about her journey, and, and again. I don't know if you want to throw gender into this. I'm sure it's part of it, but she is by far the most overqualified first-time executive in baseball history. Uh, and when you listen to this, you're going to very quickly understand why. Um, went to University of Chicago, captain of the softball team there, also played tennis. Uh, she was hired as an intern with the White Sox in 90, and the White Sox hired her on a full-time basis in 91. By 95, she was a club's assistant director of baseball operations. She then remained with the White Sox through 1996, at which point she started working for the American League as director of waivers and records, uh, approving transactions and helping with the applications of rules. And this next point, I think, is pretty relevant, and it wasn't reported a ton, but you see somebody uh, like Rachel Luba, who's Trevor Bauer's agent, and one of the big things she talks about is how difficult it is to be a female sports agent in what is such a male-dominated industry. Um, and Kim was really the one who broke barriers in this regard. Uh, in 95, she was the first woman and the youngest person to ever present a salary arbitration case. Uh, and not only that, she won that hearing. Uh, from there, in 1998, she achieved another first when the Yankees hired her as their assistant GM at 29. Uh, she was the youngest person in that role at the time and worked for the Yankees through 2001, winning three World Series rings as an executive there and the teams made the playoffs in all four years that she worked there, made the World Series in all four years that she worked there. Uh, after 2001, she made the jump to the Dodgers, was the VP and assistant GM there, and worked for the team through the 2010 season, adding another four postseason appearances to her resume. Uh, she handled more arbitration cases with the Dodgers, and while they rarely did went to an arbitration hearing, she won the cases in the instances that she argued. She was also part of the decision-making conversations on player transactions, including trades and free agency, oversaw pro scouting, uh, and was named their interim FAR director in 2004. She also, in 2005, when Ned Coletti uh, was named GM of the Dodgers, she was a finalist. So again, this is not the first time she's been up for a job, but it was the first time in a while. Uh, so credit to Derek Jeter for being the one to break the barrier. Um, and then in 2011, she joined the MLB as Senior VP of Baseball Operations, reporting directly to Chief Baseball Officer Joe Torre, becoming the highest-ranking woman in the commissioner's office. Uh, she held that position until the Marlins hired her on Friday. She also worked in the MLB's Diversity Advisory Council during her time with the league office. I mean, again, 30 years of experience. 
you hate to say if she was a man, she probably would have had a GM job a long time ago, but there is some reality to this. Um, given all of her experience, even taking you know the groundbreaking hire aside, I think the Marlins absolutely knocked it out of the park of this one. And any PR bonuses they get is just an added bonus to what is an unbelievable baseball mind. Yeah, I mean, you think about it. Uh, Joe Torre, since 2005, would take time at every single winter meetings. And he would basically, in a way, plead his case that Kim Ng was overqualified in some regards to be a general manager. Long overdue, obviously, in every professional sport, just like in real life, that there should have been a female that is running a sports franchise. When you look at how long Kim's been at it, what she's achieved, the organizations that she's done it with, it's long overdue. The great part is, say what you want about Derek Jeter, not only was this a great hire, but long term, it's a hire that hopefully now, going forward, we'll see in another five, six years, all these bright people that go to University of Chicago and do all the analytics and do all these things that men have been doing and getting hired by these organizations in these leadership roles at 28, 29 years old. This will just be the beginning that it'll be equal now and women and men will fight for these positions. Yeah, I think it's also something that needs to be said that is somewhat inconsequential, but in my mind important, and maybe I'm overthinking of it, is when Jeter did get rid of Michael Hill as president of baseball ops, a lot of people made a big deal of the fact that you were getting rid of one of the few minority baseball operation heads. So I think bringing in Kim Ng, who as the first woman to ever head the department, you know, that's absolutely massive. I think in not leveling the playing field, not that's not the word I want to use, but keeping representation consistent. Um, so I, I guess taking a step back, you know, coming into the year, if you had said on Bavada that Derek Jeter would be more popular than A-Rod at the end of the year, you probably would have said we were crazy, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but do you think with this hire, the pendulum has now between keeping Mattingly, leading the Marlins to the playoffs, and making a groundbreaking hire, that the pendulum has swung in favor back in Jeter in terms of popularity, especially given that A-Rod was, generously speaking, uh, a sore loser when it came to losing out on the Mets' ownership to Steve Cohen. Yeah, I mean, A-Fraud is, you know, there's a reason <laughs> that we refer to him, you know, let's... Uh, Let's go to the reality that, you know, you had a hit eighth in the postseason that one year. Look, A-Rod is who he is, and Jeet is consistent. Like him or hate him, he is who he is. And, uh, no, I mean, I for us as Yankee fans, you look at what they've done in Miami, and now you look at how quick he's done what he's done. Um, we thought he was crazy with some of the moves. They've, they've really worked out. You mentioned Denbo before. You know, he runs a really tight ship, but he's produced a great minor league organization, and uh, they've they've really done some good moves. They got a lot of depth. And again, how do you not love a team that's run by the National League Manager of the Year, Donald Arthur Mattingly? Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit, but the state of Florida swept Manager of the Year uh, this year. Kevin Cash also won in the AL. I guess now, you know, you have Kim Ng, you have your... Base, you had your person in charge of baseball ops for the foreseeable future in place. Um, the Marlins did pick up Starling Marte's option a few weeks ago. Uh, coming off of a playoffs, a very surprised playoff season, and even more surprising playoff series victory this year, 
it's going to be a weird offseason in terms of spending. Do you think we can affect, expect the Jeter-Sherman ownership group with Kim Ng at the negotiating table to make some noise in what's going to be an offseason unlike any other? I do. I, I think that they've put them in a position now where people are actually watching and they're appreciating at what level that they're at. Again, I think it's happened a lot quicker than people thought it was would. And I think that when they even made that original trade for Marte, uh, it, it was showing that that veteran leadership, that depth is important to them. And uh, look, and Marte, uh, he had a great year. And, uh, you know, I, I would think, too, when they picked up Starling Castro, it, it was the same kind of move. They've done it with some good balance. And, uh, yeah, I really – I don't think that they're, uh, that, they're, that they're going away. Yeah, it's, it's almost – it took us a few years to realize it, but of all the guys that traded away, the only trade they really whiffed on was the Yelich trade. Um, because you look at that Ozuna trade – I mean, one, Ozuna didn't do a ton in St. Louis. He mashed with the Braves this year. But the Ozuna trade, you got Sandy Alcantara, who was your game one starter and has already made an all-star team. He was your ace. Uh, you look at the Rio Muto trade, you got your second ace, Sixto Sanchez, in that trade. Um, so again, it's unfortunate that Jeter had to be the one to gut the team, but someone had to do it. But all things considered, uh, and you look at a team like the White Sox, who are where they are because they maximize the trade value for Chris Sale, Adam Eaton, and all those guys. Marlins have a bright path, I would say, going forward. Um, but they weren't the only team to hire a GM this week. Uh, the Angels hired a guy who I wouldn't say is a household name, but when you hear about this guy's baseball history, seems like it could be a good fit at GM. Um, after interviewing roughly 20 candidates, the Angels officially hired Braves assistant GM Perry Manassian to be their GM on Thursday. Uh, he bucked the trend of clubs hiring Ivy League-educated candidates, and he grew up in the game as the son of longtime Rangers clubhouse manager Zach Manassian and worked his way up through various roles in three organizations. Uh, the deal makes Perry the 13th GM in franchise history and is four years long. He will oversee all aspects of the club's baseball operations department and will officially be introduced in a press conference with the media tomorrow. Um, Perry's only 40 years old. He was one of two finalists to replace Billy Epler. He beat out Mar Mariners assistant GM Justin Hollander, who had previously worked for the Angels uh, for nine years. Angels assistant, special assistant Bill Stoneman helped lead the search with Moreno uh, after front, off front office executives Tony La Russa, Johnson Stranigo, and Steve Martone left the organization. Uh, and again, Perry comes from a very unique background as he's worked in a variety of roles in baseball. Uh, again, his father was the clubhouse manager for the Rangers for 22 years. Uh, so grew up around the game in a way that I would say is one of the most unique ways that we've heard in quite some time. Uh, he got his start as a clubhouse attendant for six years before he began scouting for the Rangers in 2003. Uh, his brother Calvin is the clubhouse coordinator for the Nationals, and his brother Zach is a Giants pro scouting director. So a real baseball family. Uh, from there, he continued to work his way up with the Rangers before joining the Blue Jays organization for a nine-year stint that included six years as, as director of scouting. Uh, he's the guy who drafted Syndergaard and Marcus Stroman and was responsible for the signing of international free agent Vladimir Guerrero Jr. From there, the Braves hired him as an assistant GM to Alex Anthopoulos before the 2018 season. And again, you see what the Braves have done the past three years. They won the NL East all three years from there. Uh, and this is a big job in Anaheim. Again, you have Trout, the best player in baseball since the second he made his debut. You have Anthony Rendon. You have Otani. The lineup is stacked top to bottom, but the pitching has always been an issue. Second worst ERA in the majors this past season. Um... 
All things considered, I think it's going to still be a bit of a rebuild, but if Artie Moreno is going to continue to spend money, might be a little bit easier for Minnesota to get it going. But what are your thoughts overall on what I would say is a somewhat outside-the-box hire by the Angels? Yeah, I think it's great. I, mean, I, I know that uh, Alex was so high on him and really protected him before he got that job with all the garbage that went on with the uh, illegal activities with the GM that Alex replaced. And he said, this is this kid that I want. And uh, I think that the part that's really going to be important is that he was part of this whole draft process where when the Braves not necessarily did their rebuilding, but when you no, look I at would the say they retooled. Yeah, and I think when you look at you know how they retooled and the pitching is such a bright spot for them. And I think that you got a kid that really, not only has he grown up around the game, but I think from the, the standpoint of pitching – and they needed to do something. Uh, look, I, I, we hate that we were talking about Kimming and the fact that we're where we're at right now, and it took her so long to get this position. But good, bad, or indifferent, a lot of these young GMs have done a really unbelievable job, and they've done it very quickly, surrounding themselves with good, bright people, some that are older than them. But the one thing that the analytics and the balance of what they've done is that they've brought in some really good, good talent. And I think that uh, the Angels have, look, they have to get it done because the way that they're doing it now, and, uh, you know, if you look at what they did with, uh, is it Randon that they signed last year? Correct. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's like, you know, look, it reminds me of the Yankee teams that, you know, that I grew up with in the, in the early to mid-80s. And, you know, we had this unbelievable power. But if you don't have pitching, as we know, and we saw it in this last World Series, you're not going to win. So I have two more questions for you for this one. Uh, this is the fourth straight first-time GM that Artie Moreno is now hiring. Uh, do you think as an Angels fan that that is any cause for concern? You know, I think that Artie is impatient, and his impatience is caused by the fact that he just spends so much money. Spends an yeah. absorbent amount he, of money. He, to me, he is the closest thing since we've had as a Steinbrenner. I know he doesn't get involved much in the day-to-day, but he's just somebody that's always thrown around the money, and it seems to me that the money that's thrown around and sometimes is not maybe what the baseball people are all in on. And I mean, they, you look no further than the Radon hire without a doubt. signing last yeah. year. They I needed mean, a pitcher. Right, Instead, we were shocked. They didn't get Cole. Let, let us sign another bat. Totally. So, and, and I think that, and I'm not saying anything, you know, even against Joe Madden. I mean, Joe Madden is who he is. I probably would have liked to have seen them do a different hire than Joe or Madden. Or just give Osmus a little, little yeah, more time. Yeah, absolutely. My follow-up question is, um, it seems like the Bavada favorite when this job had opened up was Dave Dombrowski. Uh, you just look at a guy, you have an owner that wants to spend money and make an immediate splash. That's Dombrowski's MO. Uh, he declined to make himself available for the job because he's helping get a team in Nashville. He's helping with that ownership perspective ownership group. Um, all that said, though, if Dombrowski wanted this job, do you think he would have been GM of the Angels? I would hope not. I just, I look at, let's, let's bring up Detroit and let's bring up Boston. On the short term, the Dave Dombrowski moves the last 10 years have been okay, but the long term, you'll get a ring, collateral but it'll gut your of franchise. what he's done. With the minor league systems has just been horrible. I mean, if it's Victor Martinez or if it's J.D. Martinez, 
Those are the signature stamps of Dombrowski, and long term, it guts the. That was a, that was a yeah, good comparison. Absolutely, there. very clever. You know? So a guy who was a former angel, uh, and this I actually had to revise the notes right before, uh, and it was without a doubt the strangest baseball press release that I've ever read, uh, and it had to do with Mike Clevenger. Uh, so the first part of the press release was that he signed a two-year, eleven and a half million dollar extension that will buy out both of his arbitration years. Uh, he's going to make two million next year, six and a half million in twenty twenty-two, three million deferred bonus and performance bonuses in twenty twenty-two. Which, when I read that, I was like, all right, that seems a little bit on the low end for Clevenger, but. I get it. I guess you want to lock in $11 million. That's great. Uh, and then the reason that he agreed to that deal is because after being hurt in the postseason, uh, it was announced today that Clevenger will get Tommy John surgery. He's going to miss the entire 2021 season. Again, he was the big move at the trade deadline for the Padres. They gave up Austin Hedges, Josh Naylor, Cal Quantrill, amongst others. Uh, the 29-year-old had a 2.84 ERA and four regular season starts for the Padres after being acquired in a nine-player trade uh, from the Indians. And between San Diego and Cleveland last year, 3.02 ERA and eight starts, 40 strikeouts against eight walks. But he was diagnosed with a right posterior elbow impregnment following his final regular season start on September 23rd versus the Angels. Uh, and in his sole postseason appearance in the NLDS on October 6th for the Dodgers, he was removed in the second inning after pitching a hitless, scoreless first. I mean, Clevenger is an ace over parts of five major league seasons between the Indians and Padres. 44 and 23 record, 319 ERA, 1.119 whip, 603 strikeouts in 105 games. But again, guy who's kind of always been hurt, hasn't really taken the full leap into the upper echelon. Um, but for this Padres team, they were counting on him and uh, Lament next year to be the aces. Now you're down, Clevenger. Uh, if you're AJ Preller, how much cash are you getting prepared to throw at Trevor Bauer in the offseason? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, let's get another Indian and the right Indian into our organization. You know, if you look at everything that's gone on with Clevenger, I mean, my God, you know, Plesak will give him a pass because he's young. He was, you know, a rookie or second year. But with Clevenger, I mean, there was no way he was going to exist in Cleveland anyway. You know, once he did what he did where they, you know, lied about going out during COVID, uh, that was the end of that. So they had to get rid of him. What a great job they were. We saw in the postseason all these young kids contribute right away and on the big stage, even though they got eliminated, thank goodness. But, no, I mean, I think that San Diego, yeah, he's going to have to really go out there and get someone the caliber of a Trevor Bauer. But at this point, uh, he's really got to be the guy. If they're going to overtake the Dodgers, that's the move that they have to make. So... If we were looking at the projected NL standings for next year, you know, I think with Clevenger and Lamette on top, they don't catch the Dodgers, but I think it's close. Um, now with a big hole in that rotation, and again, Ron Fowler has been one of the more outspoken owners, the owner of the Padres, in terms of saying how much revenue the owners lost this past year. Um, so if I had to make, and again, I don't know the number offhand, but let's say my Bavada over-under for the Padres wins for next year. Uh, they played at a pretty epic pace this year. So I'll ask you, over-under wins for the Padres next year, given how great and young the rest of that team is, uh, let's set it at 90. Let's set it at 90, assuming they re-signed Trevor Rosenthal for the back of that mm -hmm. bullpen. What do you think? I think that 90 is a given with this team. A I, given? Yeah, wow. I really do. I, I just, I don't know. I, I definitely, you know, how are the Dodgers going to do after winning it all? Is there going to be, you know, like, oh, my God, we finally did it? Or are they going to be, 
generic, like sometimes they are at the beginning of the year. And Roberts is going to have to do his magic to get everybody, you know, to to be back on board and play the way that they're supposed to play. I, I just, this Padres team is young, it's stacked. And if, in fact, they do get a Trevor Bauer, I, I, I think that, uh, and I again, I, I didn't even really think about that until you brought it up. They almost have to, because if, if it's... They have to, to do win. something. Right. They have to do something. And, and in my mind, if Fowler's willing to spend the money, I mean, all the ingredients for Bauer to go to San Diego are there. He's a UCLA guy, Southern California kid, Clevenger's his best friend in baseball. He has probably been more outspoken than anybody else in support of Fernando Tatis when everyone went crazy for the Grand Slam last year. The ingredients are there, but at a certain point, I think Bauer also wants to get paid. Uh, so hopefully the numbers catch up there, but... I, I think it just makes too much sense not to happen. You know, and if it does, boy, they're going to be hated by by a lot of guys in baseball. Um, but no, I mean, I think that uh, it it's the right place for him. I think the one-year deal, you know, the fact that he is very happy and, like, drills himself in the way that he trains where he feels that the one-year deal is more beneficial to him financially year to year. Well, he's actually backtracked on that a little bit, um, but people have dug up a tweet where um, I think it was if he signs more than a one-year deal, somebody gets to hit him in the nuts three times with a Nerf gun or something yeah. along those lines. Yeah, and he'll put it on his YouTube channel, and it'll be everything that he wants I, it to I, be. I think when Trevor made those comments <laughs> of going year-to-year deal, I think even he couldn't have anticipated that he was going right. to be coming off of a Cy Young season. Right. Um, so again, I think if he wants to max out his value... Sign a one-year, $35 million deal with the Dodgers, call it a day. Or do the same thing with the Mets. Go pair up with um, Jacob deGrom and the newly re-signed Marcus Stroman, who we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, So a lot of options there for Bauer. But sticking in the National League and a free agent signing, I was very surprised about. Uh, The Atlanta Braves, I mean, we saw the lineup's going to be great for years to come. Freddie just won the MVP. Acuna mashes. Albies is one of the best second basemen in the game. Travis Darnot. I mean, the list goes on and on. But in the postseason, they were pretty much relying entirely on rookies or second-year arms. I mean, Max Fried is a young stud. Um, He went game one, but then he had Ian Anderson, Kyle Wright, Bryce Wilson, all rookies going games two through four in the NLCS. You're going to have Mike Soroka coming back. But again, as a sinker baller coming off a torn Achilles, I mean, we saw with Ching Ming Wong as Yankee fans, the sinker was his bread and butter, and after he tore his Achilles, that was it. He was he was effectively done as a big league starter after that. Uh, so it wasn't a surprise that they were going after an arm. Um, but when I found out that they signed Drew Smiley to a one-year, $11 million contract, I was a little bit surprised, to be honest. I mean, Smiley's 31 years old, spent last year with the Giants. He was 0-1 with a 3-4-2 ERA across five starts, struck out 42 hitters in 26.1 innings, posting single-season career best and a strikeout rate with 37.8% and 14.35 Ks per nine. Uh, opposing hitters only hit 198 against him. 35 and 35 with a 413 ERA in his career. I mean, again, Drew Smiley's been a guy where whenever he's healthy, he's been an above average big league starter. But all we've heard about is how small and how limited the market's going to be. And the fact that the Braves, who had a 3 2 lead and just needed to win one more game to win the World Series, are giving Drew Smiley $11 million, that was a little surprising for me. Yeah, again, it's almost like, okay, what do they know? Uh, I go back to, like, Charlie Morton. Are they, like, looking at spin rate? 
uh, what are they? What are they seeing in Drew Smiley? I think of like John Smiley, who used to pitch for the Pirates, who was average, had a couple good years, who probably didn't make eleven million dollars in his career, <laughs> you know. And here, no, it, it is amazing to think about. Uh, you know, we're just getting off of like the uh, Robbie Ray shock of his contract. I mean, but, the fact uh, that the two of them are going to average nine and a half million dollars a year next year. I mean, the Bavada odds that that was going to happen coming into the 2020 season would have been the long, probably the biggest long shot of anything we've talked about at the show today. Without a doubt. Maybe and not Ray because you were hoping that he would revert to form, but I think the fact that Drew Smiley would be making more than $10 million and be making more than Robbie Ray would have been crazy. Yeah, and, you know, go figure. We'll be here next year at this time. And maybe it'll be me, you, and Bryce, or just the two of you talking. And you'll be saying how he was a top five finalist for the Cy Young Award. Would make sense. (laughs) Do you think, given that they're investing this money in Smiley, though, that it's safe to assume that the Braves don't see themselves re-signing Marcelo Zuna, even though he was such an essential part of that team? You know, I don't know. It, you know, obviously two or different... Two in, or two independent things just because the Braves did have such a glaring need in the rotation. Yeah, uh, I think that maybe they're not done. You know, they, they've always been driven by pitching depth. Um, they do a great job with pitching and young pitchers specifically. Uh, Yuzuna, though, I, I know how much they loved him on that team. And I would love to see, you know, I look, Marcakis... Um, if he comes back, it would be on a one-year deal. I believe is he a free agent? Yeah. Is that contract over? I know they love the presence, and I believe that they need someone that next level of a veteran. You know, and Azuna at this point, as young as he is, he's still a veteran guy because he's been you know with look Marlins, but Cardinals and the Braves, three really you know good organizations where you you got a lot of you know. Good stuff. And even Marquegas, it'll be interesting because you saw Kristen Pash came up. He made his debut late, played throughout the whole postseason. I mean, I, I, long term, I think your outfield is Austin Riley, despite how much my friend Jay hates him. <laughs> Austin <laughs> Riley and left the Kuna and center, Pash and right, or some combination of those three. So we'll see if there's room for Marquegas. But interesting move by the Braves. Not the news I was expecting to get today. But again, he's a guy, if he's healthy, He's definitely a plus lefty arm. Uh, and you throw him and Freed out there back-to-back against left-handers, you could do a whole lot worse than that. Sticking in the National League East, uh, two players accept the qualifying offers, two of the six players. Uh, and I think both were, one was a surprise, but less so than the other. Uh, the one NL East pitcher is Marcus Stroman. Um, again, 2019, came over to the Mets at the deadline, uh, was 3-0 and with a 188 mark over his last four outings with the Mets. He was an all-star with the Blue Jays last year. 29 years old, but he opted out, didn't pitch at all this year. Um, and I think he, behind Bauer, was without question the top arm on the free agent market. So, stood to make a decent amount of cash, but he actually cited in a tweet how excited he was for Steve Cohen and the new ownership to come in and how that inspired him. Uh, what do you think? If you're Stroman, again, having not pitched last year, the fact that you're making $19 million is a hell of a payday. Would you have tested free agency, or do you think he set himself up well for what should be a contending Mets team this year? You know, Pitch on this one-year deal and then hit free agency only a year later at 30 to set yourself up for an even potentially bigger payday. So well. I mean, he were from a social media standpoint, he reminds me so much of Trevor Bauer. They loved him in Toronto. He basically gave everybody a day-to-day, days of our lives of Marcus Stroman. Everything that he did, he communicated with the community there. He was beloved there. And uh, look, he opted out because of COVID. 
At the end of the day, you know, it's easy to say, oh, we understand it. Most fans probably didn't. Most Mets fans, because they're Mets fans, probably really didn't. And no, it was a brilliant move. And he tied into the whole Steve Cohn thing where it was very smart of him to say, oh, my God, I love this guy. He's great. He's doing wonderful things in the first day. And I want to be a part of it. And $18 million is, uh, you know, for a guy coming off the injuries that and will have not, a good year. And having I mean, Marcus Stroman is a badass little guy. Do you think, you know, we mentioned Trevor Bauer before, and Mets fans, all they want is to sign Trevor Bauer. They want the other A's to side the Grom. Not that Stroman isn't an ace, but, uh, again, he's more of a pitch-to-contact guy. Doesn't rely on swing and miss stuff as much as Bauer does. Do you think this increases or decreases the odds that the Mets are strong players on Bauer? I still think that they're going to be. Bauer, too, who is credit, I mean, not not even to, I guess to Steve Cohen's credit, Bauer posted a 10-minute video on Instagram yesterday, on his Instagram Live, just praising the job Cohen's done so far. Yeah, it's been unbelievable. I mean, he's really, uh, again, the guy is absolutely the master in all of professional sports as far as, you know, what you do to, to get good reactions. And, uh, no, I, I look, I think that Steve Cohen, and Sandy Alderson and whoever they end up hiring, as much as he would be the move for the Padres, is as great a first move that would be for the Mets. I mean, if you think about having DeGrom and Bauer as your one-two. With Stroman as your three, and you're going to send him back, back in June. And uh, that just takes the pressure. If it ends up being Lugo or whoever they end up having as that fourth and fifth starter, you know, all of a sudden the Mets are right at the forefront of being a conversation in the NL East. Which is awesome. I mean, I think that, that with new ownership is all you could ask for. Um, another pitcher who accepted a qualifying offer, and I wasn't surprised that he took this because this is another guy. If you had told me coming into last year he was going to make $18.9 million. Going into 2021, I would have been shocked, uh, but I thought maybe he would try to negotiate a multi-year deal, uh, and that is Kevin Gausman, former top prospect for the Orioles, up and down career there, uh, but again, this is a guy who after 2019 season, uh, he was actually DFA'd uh, by the Reds, Giants bet on his upside, one year, $9 million deal last year, 3.62 ERA, 11.9 Ks per nine, uh, doubled his year-over-year salary by accepting the qualifying offer. I mean, how surprised were you that the Giants, as big of a part as Gausman was of their rotation, even gave him this qualifying offer that Kevin fucking Gausman is going to be making $19 million next year to pitch? Shocked. Uh, I wish I still listened to Mad Dog because I could only imagine how nuts he must have gone with it. Um, I can't believe it, being Yankee fans, and that we, you know, were waiting to see what this kid was going to do with one of our big rivals in the division. Um, I say big, you know, unfortunately they've been so disappointed. But you know what though, so but, when, but when Gausman but, came up, they were our big rival no, in the division. Those were the, man, those were the Machado, yeah. Adam and Jones he was, And, and, and he him was and Bundy guy. were supposed to put him over the top. Without a doubt. Yeah, and, and and two of the more disappointing guys well, that, that we could remember. Then moved to California yeah. and started learning how to pitch. Absolutely. But yeah, shocking, glad for him. But when you talk about $18 million and you put him in Marcus Stroman, uh, boy, oh boy, did the Mets get a great deal on oh, that. I was going to say, when you especially yeah. compare the two head-to-head, head, much it, rather have Marcus Stroman. I mean, do you think we're looking towards the situation, though? I think Stroman does play out the one-year deal. Are you expecting that the Giants make a move with Gausman like the White Sox did with Jose Abreu last year, where he accepted the qualifying offer and then parlayed it into like a three-year extension with less of an average annual value? 
I hope so. I mean, I think he's he's still young enough where that is a better deal for them. Give him three for like 48. Both sides win. Yeah. And I'm sure they discussed that. But the $18 million, it's just, uh, it, it is crazy. And even when these guys go to arbitration, and I'm not sure who's eligible going into this year, but that's something that they absolutely look at. And, uh, you know, I feel bad for a team that all of a sudden, you know, will have to give a marginal guy that kind of money because of Gausman's $18 million. So, Jose Abreu, we just mentioned him. We are now going to wrap up by talking awards a little bit, uh, both the BBWA awards as well as the newly released today 2021 Baseball Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, so, Jose Abreu, your American League MVP. Freddie Freeman won it in the National League. Um, Freeman won easily collecting 28 of 30 first place votes at 410 total points. Mookie Betts was second in the NL. Uh, he got the other two point first place votes and 268 points. Uh, Manny Machado was third in the NL. Abreu's race was closer. All three AL finalists received first place votes. Uh, Abreu at 21. Jose Ramirez had eight. DJ LeMayu had one. Uh, and I will ask you this trivia question. If Jose Ramirez had won the AL MVP as a switch hitter. He would have been the first switch hitter to win the AL MVP since what player? Since Vita Blue. No hesitation. <laughs> he knows it. Loves it. I will also give you the credit that you deserve that you've been asking me about. Uh, the other day, I guess the other day, it would have been whenever the last game of the World Series was, it was Frank Thomas, Alex Rodriguez, and... Big Pop. And Big Poppy calling the game together in the studio. And somebody had tweeted, man, look at all the home runs that these three guys have hit in their career. And I don't remember the exact amount, but I did the math, and I asked my father, sitting next to me, what, what is the number of those three? And he got within one. Pretty amazing. Uh, definitely lucky, uh, but like most baseball fanatics that we all are, you know, you go through in your mind real quick, all right, this guy hit 650, this guy 575, this guy 502, and boom. And I'm not a math guy, but uh, I'm really happy with just going to the awards, talking about the MVPs. Great to see two first basemen. Wait, real quick. If anybody ever wonders where I get my quirky, bullshit sports knowledge, just please look no further than yeah, this. Absolutely. Uh, and Chase is a good teacher for me because now I'm learning from him, which is as a parent... And as a fan, the greatest day. So the two first basemen, though, it's interesting you mentioned that. Um, let's see if you know this. When was the last time? Uh, it's very rare that we have any two players at the same position winning the MVP, uh, especially at first base, just because it's so hard because you really get no defensive value. In the modern day, generally speaking, with war and everything, you know, first baseman can hit the shit out of the ball, but defense is whatever. Generally, those guys aren't stealing bases. Uh, so when was the last time that two first basemen won the MVP in the same year? And I will tell you this. It was not 79 uh, when Willie Stargell and Keith were co-MVPs. Wow. Was it, uh, can I, is it before 79? It's, it, it is within the past 25 years. So I'll tell you that because I think that might lead you to think of two different answers, one of which is later than the other one. Okay, so I was going to throw out Donnie uh, as the year that he won, but probably not. That was not. Donnie and did Doc win the MVP? No. No, it was 86? Donnie won it in 85 because Clemens won it okay. in 86. Um, hmm. So two first basemen. Uh, you know me. I'm going to go through every team, so tell me. And then we'll go back and do the All research. All right, so it wasn't, it, I'll say this, it wasn't 1994 when Bagwell and Frank Thomas did it. Okay. Uh, these two guys, 
The hints I will give you, the American League guy, um, probably robbed a player that we've talked about, one of our favorite players of all time. I would say most people with revisionist history would have given it to that Yankee. Um, and in the National League, it's a guy, speaking of torn Achilles, that if he didn't tear his Achilles, probably ends up hitting 500 home runs and coasting into Cooperstown. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. So the American League... Justin Morneau. Ah, I mean, okay. you look through the lens. Oh, Jeter yeah. should have won it. Oh, yeah, that was just And ridiculous. in the National League, this guy still finished with 383 homers. But if Ryan Howard didn't tear his Achilles, probably stays in the middle of that Phillies lineup for yeah, a few more years, gets to 500, ring MVP, Philadelphia, he's in. You know, and Justin Morneau, I mean, another thing that he did in Yankee Stadium he had no business winning that home run derby the year he was up against Josh Hamilton. Well, it was he like was hitting bombs well, off of uh, it was, the bleacher. It was like the last home run derby we had when it was uh, Pete Alonso who was awesome, right. but I mean Vlad put on a clinic. Right, totally. He just ran out of gas. Yeah, that that would be a great show. Just talking about some of the injustice of the home run derby, Jock Peterson. All right, so Abreu is the third Cuban-born MVP. Can you name the other two? This is good because Bryce definitely couldn't do this, but maybe you could. You know, um, Zoilo okay. Versailles. All right, you who, got, you got the lot, harder one of right, the two. You know, who a lot of people, you know, and when you look at the year he had with the Twins, the year he won, I mean, there Well, he won us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, there, there was no way that he won. Um, wow. Uh, Orlando Cepeda? No, uh, no, he's Dominican. Um, no, he is Cuban. He Cepeda. is Cuban. All right. It wasn't Tony Oliva. Jose Canseco. Wow. In 88. Wow, you forget about that. Yeah. Fourth, you know, instinctively, I always just think he was born in Miami, but no. Fourth White Sox to win the award, joining the Big Hurt, Frank Thomas, Dick Allen, and Nellie Fox. Two Hall of Famers and a guy in Dick Allen who yeah. I think... And Nellie Fox, God bless him, but he shouldn't have never been a Hall of Famer. Uh, Braves seventh season this year. He led, was second in the MLB with 19 homers, fourth in the AL with a 317 average. Uh, led the AL on ribbies for a second straight season. Uh, he became the 28th player to win the Rookie of the Year at MVP in his career. Uh, and, and again, just invaluable leadership to this young White Sox team. You know, I think part of the reason they brought him back, and a lot of people were surprised they gave him a three for 51, especially with Andrew Vaughn, their top offensive prospect, being a first baseman, is you have Eloy, you have Moncada, you have Luis Robert, you have these three so, so young Latin American players uh, who Abreu could be a mentor for. Uh, and you could just see, I mean, I've never seen, maybe in my life, a guy so overcome with emotion receiving an award like I saw Abreu. Yeah, it was it was incredible. I think it's like kind of what we all needed when we look at uh, what everybody's gone through or going through day-to-day, what the world is going through, the country, and to have a kid from Cuba that risked what he did to come over here and... Uh, you know, I'll never minimalize the money that any of the kids earn that come from there because they so deserve it. But, uh, yeah, it was unbelievable. But it, it's, it's really funny, and it's going back to what we talked about when we started the hour. You just went through, like, six or seven guys of this team and how young they are in the makeup of the team. And it's like, and you hired why Tony LaRusso? It, totally it just does it. not make sense. And hopefully they'll get it right. So in the National League with Freddie Freeman, I mean, once Dale Murphy was presenting this award, the Bavada odds that Freeman was going to be the MVP should have been 100%. It's like, it was. I think everybody knew Freeman was going to win, but if Murph is presenting it to give it to Mookie, that wouldn't have made sense. Obviously, Dale Murphy, two-time back-to-back MVP with the Braves. Uh, weird year with Freeman. I mean, COVID nineteen, the second day of summer camp, uh, was sidelined really up until the first, up until the week before the regular season. He was hitting one ninety on August fifth, but from there on, 
384, 11 homers, MLBS 1.220 OPS from August 9th through the end of the regular season. His 1.102 OPS was the second highest in the majors, trailing only Juan Soto. Led the majors with 50 runs once, 51 runs scored. Second in the AL with a three or in the NL with a 341 average, 462 on base, 640 slugging. Uh, Braves won a third straight NL East title. Uh, he joins Chipper Jones, Terry Pendleton, Dale Murphy, Hank Aaron, and Bob Elliott as the only Braves to win the MVP. Uh, and I think this is interesting because these are two guys who year after year in Freeman and Abreu put up these great numbers and just get lost in the shuffle because maybe it's because they play for the Braves and White Sox. But, I mean, you look at Freeman, he's probably going to be a Brave the rest of his career. I think he'll take the mantle from Chipper. But he's on pace to have a Chipper career where he's going to probably finish with over 400 homers, 2,500 hits, right around a 300 average, and uh, is really on pace to end up in Cooperstown, I think. Yeah, I mean, just the prototypical left-handed hitting first baseman and everything that this guy does is first class. So I think back to the early stages of COVID and uh, before they reported to spring training and we were enthralled with the videos of him hitting in his apartment and just seeing all the glass window and he had the net up and obviously what he did and how he endured those early stages when he came up. Didn't get his legs because of COVID when he had finally gotten a little healthier. He'd lost like 17, 18 pounds because of it. And uh, what I love about him is that uh, we see all these videos too of him with his kid all the time. And he's just, he's freaking awesome. He's just such a class act. Uh, a couple more notes on the MVP voting. The first is in the NL, Tatis finished four, Juan Soto finished five. I, I mean, is it safe to assume that those are going to be two guys we're going to see in the MVP voting in the NL for the next decade? Yeah, and, and I hope that they're there, and I hope Manny Machado uh, <laughs> isn't in the top three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, to me, as much as I love watching Tatis Jr., is how much I dislike watching uh, the other guy. And uh, no, I mean, what, what what's going on right now in Washington? And Atlanta and this young talent and these these outfielders and these left-handed hitters. and It's a dream. Shane Bieber finished fourth. And amazingly enough, Mike Trout finished fifth in the MVP voting, which to some guys might be a career achievement. For him, it was the lowest he's finished in the MVP vote in his entire big league career, which is absolutely incredible. Nine straight top five MVP finishes to start his career. Um, I think the most ever is like 12 by A-Rod. So uh, the fact that he's done nine to start his career is incredible. Also want to give a shout out to Ryan Tapera, who received an NL MVP vote Thursday by accident. Uh, the Cubs reliever 392 ERA over 22 thirds innings. Uh, he got the vote because Hall of Fame writer Rick Hummel, who have covered the Cardinals for the St. Louis Dispatch for nearly 40 years, meant to vote Trey Turner 10. Got him mixed up on the drop-down arrow. Uh, I think, for me, the biggest surprise there wasn't the vote, but given how old school the BBWA is, that they didn't have them fill out a ballot by hand. Right, and Hummel said that he, like, obviously, like, when he did his typing, <laughs> you know, a 40-year guy that had been on the beat forever with a great team like the Cardinals has penned some awesome articles, but uh, not all by typing. And uh, something that we would look at as is so simple is just kind of, filling out a little box like we used to love doing at the All-Star game with the number two pencil. Or I would um, use the fork yeah, to poke it right, out. totally. But uh, no, it's amazing. And uh, they had fun with it, too. They they were great. As you and I discussed, though, thank goodness that, uh, you know, Trey Turner didn't have that incentive where if he lost by, like, the one vote and he had to finish in the top, you know, seven or eight to mm. get, you know, could've an been, extra million or two. Could have been absolutely catastrophic. Uh, on the pitching side of things, it was a big, big day uh, for the state of Ohio. 
One, because former teammates from the Indians, Trevor Bauer and Shane Bieber, took home the awards. Um, but Bauer now is a member of the Reds. Ohio swept the awards, uh, which is pretty amazing there. Bauer became the first Reds pitcher to win the Cy Young, which is amazing. When you think of all the guys who have pitched from the Reds and how long that franchise has been around, uh, Bieber became the fifth Indians pitcher. Uh, again, no surprise here. Bieber was unanimous. Uh, he became the first unanimous Cy Young winner since Kershaw in 2014 and the 24th overall. Maeda and Ryu finished second and third. Uh, Bauer received 27 first place votes. Uh, Hugh Darvish received the other three. And Jacob DeGrom came in third. Um, it's the second time that both Cy Young winners came from the same state joining Mike Marshall and Vita Blue and the state of California in 1974. Uh, and even goes a step further, both are products of the UC system. Bauer went to UCLA, Beaver, UC Santa Barbara, and again, both were teammates. Both came from the Indian system. So really cool that these two guys, who were very close friends, won it together. Um, Bieber, 25 years old. I mean, 41.1% strikeout rate was the highest ever by a qualified starting pitcher. 163 ERA was the lowest by a qualified AL starter since MLB lowered the mound in 69. His 167 opponents average tied Pedro in 2000 for the lowest since 1969. He was the fastest pitcher to reach 100 strikeouts in a season in 62 and one-thirds innings. Uh, hitters went just 8 for 84 against his curveball. Eight wins, 163 RA, 122 strikeouts, became the first MLB Triple Crown winner since Johan Santana in 2006. And on the other side of things, Bauer led the NL with a 173 ERA, .79 whip, and two shutouts, also led the league in ERA+. He ranked second to the Grom in strikeouts and Ks per nine. Um, I mean, Bauer really, I think, down the stretch won this award. I think in September, teetered from Darvish to DeGrom. I thought it was DeGrom's to win at one point. Um, but where DeGrom had a 3-3, 3.33 ERA in the final month because of a stray start in Philadelphia. Bauer had a 1.29 ERA in five September starts, eight dominant innings against the Brewers in his final outing on September 23rd, which helped pitch them into the postseason. Uh, to me, the writers got this right, and it really sets up a fascinating offseason where, again, you have a reigning Cy Young winner hitting free agency for the first time in his career. Yeah, and he's so different than, you know, a couple years back when Garrett Cole won the Cy. But you look Garrett at Eric Cole's never won the side. Oh my God! You're Verlander won it wow, last year. Wow, Verlander won. That's right. He stole it from him. Cole finished. I stand corrected. Cole finished fourth, which is going to be my next oh question. My uh, it seems about right to me, given. Yeah. Wow. I'm really off. Well, he's kind of using that setup. That uh, sorry, Cole finished fifth. Dallas Keuchel finished fourth. Oh my God! Wow. So shame on me. But just the whole UCLA thing, regardless if they liked each other or not. I mean, it was a long time ago, but. When you look at Garrett Cole, the respect that everyone has for him, the, the way that he works, the way that he breaks this down as a science, the art of pitching, Trevor Bauer's the same way, but Trevor, Trevor's like the mad scientist. Like, he, he's just a freak, and he just does these things, and he has got himself set up. And to his credit, he feels that there's nobody that's better than him. And, uh, I, yeah, look, there's a part of me, I would love to see him at the end of the day be a New York Yankee. I'd even love to see him sign with the Reds. But, you know, after what we discussed, I think that the place that he needs to land is San Diego. I think it makes the most sense to try to put a team over the top. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Bauer being a freak. I mean, he's been very open saying, I want to pitch every uh, three days instead of four days. You know, he wants to be the guy who takes the ball as much as possible, sets up a really interesting offseason uh, but again, shout out to both of those guys. Uh, and it's got to be the first time ever that two different awards were swept by 
people that come from the same state. Uh, Manager of the Year awards, Donnie and Kevin Cash were honored uh, this past Tuesday. Cash received 22 of 30 first place votes in the AL. Donnie received 20 of 30 in the NL. Uh, Mattingly became the fifth man to win the MVP and a Manager of the Year award. Uh, I mean, again, I think both of these guys' stories need no introduction, but we'll tell them one more time. Rays finished 40 and 20, had the most players on the injury list this year, ended up going to the World Series. Donnie, Marlins are hit with a massive COVID outbreak. They have to use, what's the exact number here? I mean, they they had 18 members of their original 30-man roster sidelined at the beginning of the season. They played 49 games in 47 days, go 31 and 29, make the playoffs, win a playoff series behind this young team. Uh, and again, I, I think... Writers got it right. Not a lot of controversy there. And the only guy I feel for uh, is really Jace Tingler because to go 37-23 and 23 in your first year as a manager, finish second to the eventual World Series champs for the best record in the league, uh, and not win manager of the year, that sucks. Yeah, you know, and I know when we look back on it, you, you rarely remember who was the actual manager of the year. I think this year we're going to look back on it, and it really does mean something. Because of COVID and the circumstances, uh, obviously the dining well-documented and what they did in the early days where it got to the point where we didn't even know if the Marlins were going to have a team to field and if there was going to be baseball because of the Marlins. And where they ended up was just absolutely remarkable. And being in the AL East and watching every game like we do, uh, Cash just did a remarkable job. He really did. Not Not thrilled obviously with the moves that he made but again this doesn't but, but this doesn't count the postseason do totally yeah i mean cash cash was the guy he, he did i mean rick renteria got the white Sox there a year early but you just look at what they did the whole year i i mean the rays had no business being as good as they were and he milked every ounce of talent out of yeah, that no, team. i think you're right you know rarely do you look back there's always some controversy or some disagreements in the all the awards and i think you know obviously the rookie of the years were, were pretty stamp you know these are the guys and uh they got everything right from the Cy Young to the manager to of course the MVPs so we'll wrap up with which what is year in and year out the most interesting thing the Baseball Right Association of America does which is Hall of Fame voting uh and we'll talk about this a lot more me and Bryce in the coming weeks but the ballot was announced this year uh this year's ballot was announced today so I'll start with the newcomers uh, not a lot of really no names here that I think are going to get consideration. Uh, but yeah, Mark Burley, you know, no hitter in a perfect game, 200 plus wins, AJ Burnett, Michael Kadire, Dan Heron, Latroy Hawkins, Tim Hudson, Torrey Hunter, Aramis Ramirez, Nick Swisher, Shane Victorino, and Barry Zito. So my question will be of all of those guys, who do you think has the best chance to stay on the ballot after more than one year? I think it's probably Torrey Hunter. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I think he's the most deserving. I think that a real leader wherever he played, great defensive outfielder, and uh, that, that would be mine. And I think that he also has done a lot for the game. I'll say Torrey, or a guy who I think was pretty criminally underlooked, four-time All-Star, won a ring with the Giants in 2014, and that's Tim Hudson. I mean, again, not a Hall of Famer, but you, Solid go, you go 222 and 133 in your career, 349 ERA, pitching in a hitter's era, um, you know, made over 480 starts, 57.9 war, puts him right on the cusp of Hall of Fame consideration. Again, not a guy I would vote for, but not a guy I would want to fall off the ballot after It's interesting when you look at I would like, say he's like the Bernie of pitchers in my totally. mind. Totally. And when you look at like when he and Zito came up and you projected like the two of them and you look where Zito ended up and where Hudson ended up, I mean, shout out to Tim Hudson. Great career. So looking at the returning guys on the ballot, Bobby Abreu, and this is in uh, – 
ascending order. Can from- I go back for one second? You mentioned Bobby Abreu, and when you were when we were talking about Jose Abreu, uh, for players with the last name, and let's take the Aaron's out, maybe the Negroes out, but offensively, is there someone with a last name that two guys share that have had better? I mean, Jose needs to keep doing this, but uh, at the end of the day, the Abreu name, represented by these two guys at least. Crazy numbers. I'll do some more homework and report. Yeah, on that it could next be fine. So this is from bottom to top in terms of the amount they got at the, on the ballot last year. Abreu at five point five percent representing the bottom. Abreu, Andy Pettit, Sammy Sosa, Andrew Jones, Jeff Kent, Manny, Todd Helton, Sheffield, Billy Wagner, Roland, Omar, Bonds, Clemens, Schilling. Um, to me, this is the year Schilling's getting in. I think there's no. This is going to be the first time since 2013. I think I read that there's no first ballot Hall of Famer. I think this is the year. Politics aside, Schilling gets in, takes his rightful place in Cooperstown, and it'll be interesting. I mean, if there's a year for Bonds and Clements to make the big jump, they're both around 61 percent. I think this is the year for both of them. Uh, the other two guys I like to make a big jump this year. Uh, I think Scott Rowland. I think Scott Rowland is the Ron Santo of this era. You know, great all-around third baseman who. The analytics community is really taking up a cause for him. To me, a guy who's been on my ballot, Billy Wagner. I know longevity wasn't really there, but the guy retired with a one-something ERA for the Braves. Could have kept pitching to get 500 saves if he wanted to, but on a per-batter basis, arguably the most dominant relief pitcher of all time. If he wanted to keep pitching, easily could have had the Trevor Hoffman numbers, in my opinion. Uh, and the other guy I think is set up to make a big jump is actually Andre Jones. Uh, this is the guy who Bryce has been campaigning for a long time. And again, his argument, which I couldn't really couldn't agree more with, is if you're going to have Scott Rowland in based on his defense, Andrew Jones is arguably the best defensive center fielder ever. Also was a stud in the playoffs and hit 400-plus home runs for the Braves. Uh, those are my thoughts. Any early thoughts on this year's Hall of Fame ballot? So Jones, you know, when he came up in 96 uh, – We've never seen anything like it. I mean, what he was doing defensively out in center field, uh, his at-bats, the home runs, the power. I mean, he was – we looked at Junior, and then we looked at Andrew Jones, and it was pretty remarkable how unbelievable this kid was. And he had a long, really solid career. I think what's going to end up hurting him is the the lifetime average. But, like you said, I mean, I – you and I talk about this all the time. I mean, you can tell me all day long, I don't look at Scott Rowland as a Hall of Famer. I just don't. And if you're going to put the Omar Vizquel's in and you're going to look at the defensive sabermetrics, which are so critical today, the way that they're judging players as the complete player, yeah, then Andrew Jones, you got to take a look at him. Uh, for me, clear cut. I mean, Billy Wagner, absolutely Hall of Famer. I mean, I love a guy that's a 5'9", you know, 190 lefty, but uh, he was a dominant closer for a long time. The last guy I'll ask you about, uh, he's, I mean, Jeff Kent. I've made, oh, yeah. I mean, made my opinion clear. I mean, look, me was the guy an asshole? Yes, but if you're arguably the best offensive player of the modern era position, you need to be in Cooperstown, and that's exactly what Without Jeff a Kent doubt. is. Without a doubt. But the last guy I'll ask you about, um, how much do you think Todd Helton's candidacy is helped by the fact that Larry Walker is now in Cooperstown. Um, I, I don't know how much the voters take stock in it, but if you play your whole career for one team and you're Mr. Insert Team here, talking George, Brett, Gwynn, Helton is Mr. Rocky, and I don't think there's anyone else in the conversation. You take that into account with the fact that they have over 1,400 runs, 2,500 hits, almost 600 doubles, 369 homers, 1,400 ribbies, over 1,300 walks, 
316 average, 414 on base percentage, 133 OPS plus. I know he played in Coors Field his whole career, but you still have to be a hitter to put up those numbers. Yeah. We started this show an hour ago talking about Mr. Jerry Reinsdorf. And I will now say that because of Mr. Jerry Reinsdorf and because of Tony La Russa, Harold Baines got into the Hall of Fame. And if Harold Baines got into the Hall of Fame for what he did during his tenure with the White Sox, yeah, he played with the Rangers and he played with the A's. But at the end of the day, if you're going to pair Todd Helton to Harold Baines, Todd Helton is a Hall of Famer, and Tony La Russa should not be the manager, and Jerry Reinsdorf should get bought out. I think that's the perfect way to wrap <laughs> this up. Dad, Mike, thank you for joining. Love always, you. Thank you for having always me. Always a pleasure. With Mike Midorski, this is Chase Midorski. This is the Underdog Sports Baseball Show. Have a great week.